Hello and welcome to the Breakdown Podcast. We have a blockbuster episode for you today, um, joined by Pat Shaw, um, currently sitting in second on the NRS standings and maybe looking to move up into first after the one ball on Saturday. But um, we'll be talking Tour of Tassie first and yeah, Pat, uh, how did it go down there in Tassie for you and the boys? Yeah, look, um, pretty happy with how the tour went. Um, obviously, we didn't win, which is our first round that we haven't won, but um, only because we got beaten by uh, an exceptional rider on Poetina. The time that Ben Dibble did um, Poetina, you can see rivals that of Richie Port on that particular climb. So, you know, we did everything we could and, um, and we raced it to the end. So even on the final stage, we still uh, did everything we could to, to take back that jersey. But um, well done to Mobius Future Racing and also Ben Dibble. Yeah, Mobius are doing a great job. I mean, since the, at the start of the season, you would have said State of Matter would be the main team to take up the challenge to you guys. But Mobius have really raced in aggressive fashion. You often see them on the front of the peloton and they're not afraid to try things in those in those harder stages as well. So it must be interesting to have that sort of level of competition coming against you. Yeah, for mine, I've uh, really liked the way that they've approached the racing and also um, taken ownership of their results, if you like. I think that's probably the best way to put it. So not letting luck become the part that uh, decides the results, but actually getting on the front if they, even if they know that they might not win a particular stage, but they know it's in their best interest for three or four days later to keep a race intact, and they've done that. So, yeah, you can't fault them. They've done the right things. Um, I, and, they, yeah, they beat us in uh, Tour of Tasmania, and it's nice to have those uh, teams challenging. I think uh, a fair few teams are actually starting to ride a lot better. Uh, GPM um, is definitely uh, – Trent Wilson's team was definitely riding – these last couple of tours, a lot more as a team. And although, um, you know, we're not talking about them probably on the GC front at the moment, they're definitely taking the right steps to, to be a team down the track that could, uh, you know, win one of these races overall. And Ben Dibble, um, is he the best climber in Australia at the moment? Uh, climbers as well, uh, other than him. I mean, Dylan Sunderland's come on in leaps and bounds. A guy like Jesse Featon, he's come to the come to the fore and of course Chris Hamilton meaning he'd be off to World Tour next season but he's obviously a superb climber. Yeah look Ben Dibble's um, climbing ability is no secret and has never been a secret um, but we've got to keep in mind as well that Ben hasn't been exposed to the full season of the NRS. Um, he came in for Tour of Canberra and you can tell he was using that as a lead up event, event for the Tour of Tasmania. He's got the reward that he really needed to get for that um, sacrifice for the season, which has been pretty much made uh, Tour of Tasmania his one and only focus and road terrific. Uh, Dylan Sunderland, yes, for sure. He's, uh, but he's also, he's raced uh, quite a lot. So I think he probably shows that he's got the ability going forward to, to get better and also be a better rider across the board, not only as a climber. Um, I think you'll have Chris Harper out, which is one that's really stood out for me this season. I think if he improves his technical side of cycling, um, which is to be understood, you know, he's fairly new to the game. Um, but if he if he um, improves that technical side, I think he's going to be probably a rider that can win any tour on any terrain. Um, and, and that's pretty massive considering how great a climber he is that you could uh, feasibly see him even winning some of the time bonus tours because of his sheer ability to, to take a race on single-handedly. Um, you know, you have uh, Angus Lyons, young rider from Ballarat, um, really coming up quite well as well. And I think the other guy that stood out for me was Ethan Berens from uh, the Victoria Institute of Sport. Very young, I think he turned 18 during the tour. Yeah, he's a fantastic talent. Yeah, I mean, obviously Chris Harper had a great start to the season um, in the Victorian circuit, but um, I think he didn't he have an injury or sickness coming into the um, NRS rounds, which uh, prevented him from being at his, you know, at his best, uh, which was, you know, unfortunate. So anyway, I'd be looking forward to seeing how he develops from here. Um, okay, well, we'll move on to oh well, we'll we'll mention Anthony Giacoppo because I mean he of course um, started off well, took two stage wins and is looking really strong at the moment, and especially coming into Melbourne to Warrnambool, a race that should suit him quite well. 
Yeah, Anthony Giacopo missed um, the initial part after he came back from Europe just because of injury that he'd um, actually got from a crash in his final event in Europe. He's pretty badly banged up. So he's just started to really hit his straps again after really showing some quite amazing form over there. Um, so, yeah, it was really great to see him not only win, you know, what was basically a sprint stage um, for the time trial. It was just a straight out of the blocks, full gas all the way up the hill, who could hold the rubber down um, and go fast. And that was perfect for him. But then for him to win up Grindelwald was just a, a, an amazing effort. Um, you know, when you consider that he's a sprinter, just shows how well he can actually climb as a sprinter. So definitely going into Melbourne to Warnable, he'll be very confident um, if it comes down to a bunch sprint because uh, the climb out of Camperdown will be no issue for him. Yes, hello and welcome to the Breakdown Podcast. I am Jamie Finch-Penninger and I'm joined by Sam Burston um, of Mobius Future Racing. Luckily, un- sorry, unluckily, he was unable to join the call with myself and Pat earlier, but um, it's great to have you along, Sam, and congrats on the team's win in Tasmania. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me along. We're all pretty still stoked about our win in Tassie. I'll, I'll get to Tassie in a moment, but um, we'll talk a bit about you um, because... You, your rider's come on along a lot in the last year in particular, it seems. Um, you've done, done quite well at Oceania's. You've done um, well in Grafton to Inverell in particular. That was one race where you're in that early break there and looked very good. Um, and you've been over to France as well, I understand, um, with Enbon uh, Cyclisma over there. Yeah, that's right. The pronunciation's a bit tricky, but you got close to the most. Um, <laughs> Yeah, my season, I, I started really targeting the graft and it's, I did it last year for the first time and ran 11th and this year the goal was to pop inside the top 10 and hope for a podium and um, getting that early move meant that, yeah, I mean, at one stage it was looking like it was going to be 5th but 7th was still a pretty good result um, and then headed over to France for a couple months to race in Brittany. Oh yeah, so how did it go over there? What was the experience like? It's very different to racing in Australia. Um, the racing in Brittany doesn't have nearly as much structure. So it's just attacks and attacks until there's a few guys left standing at the end that do like a sort of half sprint because they're so cooked, which is racing that really suits my style. And I loved it. Um, but I have to say it is nice to be back in Australia and racing in a, in a more team environment as well. Yeah, and uh, Mobius this year, you guys have done really well. You've um, really become the, the second team. I mean, you're probably fighting in there with uh, N-Swiss and State of Matter and, and those sort of teams um, for that for that, you know, that second level behind Avanti. But you've taken some really good results this year, including a few stages of Great South Coast and some good results um, besides that as well. Yeah, our manager, Tom Petty, has a sort of knack for detecting talent, I think, and He's brought on a lot of young riders. We're quite often one of the youngest average rate, average age rider teams at these races. Um, but keeping the core group of riders from season to season has really helped to have like a, a positive attitude and a positive team spirit um, that we've yeah managed to hold on to and grow throughout the year. We've gotten better and better at riding together as a unit, which has really helped uh, with results. And we've been able to better and better protect each other. So. I think the culmination of that was Sunday's crit down in Tasmania. We were able to just control every attack and answer everything that came along the way. And um, we're, yeah, we're really happy with that. And uh, in particular, I mean, the team's recruited a lot of um, New Zealanders, is what I've noticed. Um, young Robert Stannard, James Fouché, and Alex West is uh, looking like a really neat climber as well. Yeah, and Nick Kurgazoo on that list as well. Um, a good sprinter and um, great rider on the track as well. But, yeah, I think having the New Zealand connection has really helped. They're super tough riders. We've got two of them racing the worlds as we speak right now over in Doha in the under-19 time trial. Um, and we're hoping they'll continue to be a core part of the team, um, keeping that Sydney base, but also having... Yeah, some great young New Zealanders who might not otherwise get that opportunity to race in some big races like the NRS has become. 
we'll dig into the tour of Tasmania a bit more now. And uh, so stage, well, stage one, the prologue was uphill and it was really, really short. It was about uh, 680 metres, was it, was it in the end? Um, and it ended up with Anthony Giacoppo of Vivanti taking the win from Cam Ivory, who's, of course, a um, cross-country mountain biker and vice for GPM Stultz as well. And Pete Livingston, your teammate, uh, took third there. Yeah, Pete was um, in second for a long time, um, but third was a fantastic result. That was his first NRS podium. Uh, the course suited him to a tee, and he's just finally gotten the confidence to back himself and and ride like one of the best riders in the peloton like he is over that sort of discipline. What, what do you think of that sort of start to the tour? I mean, it's... I, I like the prologue because it because it breaks people it breaks um, the race up a bit and establishes a packing order from start. But it's pretty brutal start to the race, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, my from my personal experience, a lot of riders were telling me that uh, you know that the corners, you know, you think you have to break for them, but you could just roll through them because they were quite quite sharp t- turns on the way up the climb. But I was going so slow that I never thought I had to break at all. Um, in the end, I didn't finish doing too badly, um, but I think a prologue like that is a really good way to start a race, and that sort of uh, those sort of time gaps were probably perfect. They weren't so big that it blew the race out, but they allowed sprinters um, to keep in touch with GC, I guess, uh, at the start of the race at least. Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really spectator friendly, which is a lot of the NRS isn't. Um, and it was a lot of fun. You know, um, yeah, and on to the first proper stage, the 115-kilometre stage from Georgetown to Grindelwald. And it had that has that nasty little climb at the end there, um, Grindelwald. And um, I understand you guys were caught out of position there a bit um, on the run-in, um, lost Ben Darbo at one point. Yeah, that's we'll cop that. That's a fair criticism. Um, my job on the day had been to sort of ride the front with uh, Jason Lee from Avanti and hold the break in check. Uh, there's plenty of teams that like to let Avanti just control the race. Uh, we're not one of those. We were just trying to keep the break in check. Um, Avanti just opened it up in a crosswind, did a six-man sprint off the front. Uh, and I just said, well, my job's done, looked up and waited for Ben to come past, but unfortunately he'd just gone to the back to have something to eat at the wrong time and uh, was <laughs> caught off guard. So the next uh, 10 to 20 kilometres, myself, Aiden Reynolds, Alex West, Ben Carmen were just, just on the front trying to drill that, drill that break, break back. Uh, we managed it in the end, um, saving Alex West and uh, Ben Dibble enough that when they got to the final climb, they could do their job. So Look, we got caught out. It was a mistake, but our reaction was perfect straight away. Um, whole team on the front driving it. So I guess that that's one positive we can look at. It. But hats off to Avanti for never just sitting up and letting the race go. Yeah, and in the end, it was um, Anthony Giacoppo um, winning his second stage in a row um, on the finish there, sprint, out sprinting Dan Fitter from State of Matter and Bernie Salzberger, who um, um, Bernie Salzberger riding for Saddlers there came in third. Um, good to see him back on the on the stage. Um, yeah, it's been a while since I've seen him racing locally. Um, the second stage was 91 Ks from Devonport to Penguin and saw Chris Hamilton, the youngster, take that, take that one out. Um, it sounded like... Uh, from Chris Harper there and Anthony Giacoppo um, again getting up there in third. Sounded like an absolutely brutal um, finish to the stage again. I mean, you mentioned how Avanti were putting the pressure on towards the end and again, um, sounded like they were really trying to break the thing, the, the peloton up before the final there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, over Guns Plains, it's always incredibly windy and it's a, it's a hard climb to get up there. So if you're cooked from the climb or if you're caught off guard and the Avanti, like they do, they have four riders left and they really drop the hammer and put it in the gutter, you're going to get caught out. And um, we were lucky. Alex West was able to hold position and Ben Dibble only lost a small amount of time in the end there. Um, but, yeah, it was small groups coming to the finish. Yeah, where, where do you find yourself amongst all of that? Um, yeah, you mentioned Dibble lost a bit of time. It lost about 40 seconds on that stage, actually. Still close enough, though, heading into the next one. Yeah, look, we weren't too worried with the 40 seconds. Ben beat himself up a fair bit about that because he's a perfectionist when it comes to his riding. But 
look, mistakes happen. Um, I, in an ideal world, I would have been there to help Ben in the finish. But um, unfortunately, Pete Livingston had a flat and we actually pegged him as our, our best chance to win that stage. So on the guns plane, guns plane climb, I uh, slowed down to wait for him while he got a wheel change from my other teammate, Aiden Reynolds. And uh, unfortunately, just working together, we just couldn't get back on Avanti. They're all good riders, aren't they? And when they're working together, hard to bring back. And then the stage from Launceston to Poatina, 103 kilometres, and very much categorised by that final climb there. It's flash. It's essentially flash up until the the big climb there. And yeah, it was Ben Dival from Mobius Future Racing who sprang clear um, with still plenty plenty of the race left to go, and just kept on putting time into the rest. And it was an incredible climb. I mean, he was holding off Chris Hamilton, who's and considered one of the best climbers in Australia and is going to the World Tour next year. And in that group as well was Angus Lyons and Ding- Dylan Sunderland, who finished second and third, respectively, both amazing climbers as well. So to see him putting time into those guys by himself was, was quite incredible. When we looked at this race and when the courses were released, our plan had been to just save Ben until Poetina. So keep him protected as much as possible, keep him as high as possible on GC and then let him do what he does best. Um, He's an exceptional climber, and we knew that all we had to do was keep the pace high along the stage and not let the brake get too far ahead. And then once we got to the base of the climb, we would just light it up as hard as we could and uh, launch Ben. Uh, We knew he needed the whole length of the climb to open up enough of a gap to take GC lead. Um, And we knew that if Avanti tried to team team Sky it like they normally do, they would just ride at the comfortable tempo for them and keep Chris Hamilton nice and protected. So, well, a smart move. Um, I heard that there was a bit of a bit of um, issues with Ben at the start of the stage, though. He had some mechanical issues there. Yeah, it was um, unfortunately a a tour of mechanicals for us in in a lot of ways, um, which is quite cruel because we're so meticulous with our equipment, and Tom Petty does such a good job of making sure every rider has what they need with their bikes. Um, but Ben suffered a flat. There was just a, a wheel scenario which involved a rider returning to the team car twice and getting Ben's, the wheel off Ben's spare bike. He wanted to ride his Cervelo R5CA um, on the climb just because it's an amazingly stiff and light frame. Um, so we had to do the wheel swap and get him a nice Dura C24 to ride to the top. Uh, which we did in the end, but it took about 20 kilometers. Luckily for me, I was pace setting for all of this. I was just sitting on the front um, with Jason Lee from Avanti while the boys sorted Ben out. Well, yeah, I mean, lucky, but you've got to do a lot of work to um, to be creating the pace at the front there. But I suppose it's a bit more, um, a bit less hectic than um, than liaising between the car and um, and your team leader. Yeah, that's right. Um... This is probably this is my first season where I've spent this much time sort of pace setting in the peloton, and as hard as it is, you get quite a nice uh, mental break from fighting for wheels in the peloton. So uh, I don't mind it too much. In the end, uh, oh wait, there's another stage to go yet. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, there was the, f- the fourth stage criterium, and um, there were some dangerous moves in there as well. I mean, uh, I think I think um, who was it who went off the front there? Um, you're gonna have to remind me. Yeah. Chris Harper was off the front at one stage. Um, Avanti at one stage or another had pretty much all their riders off the front. Um, uh, Dylan Sunderland was launching attacks early on. It was a it was a very hectic criterion for us, uh, but we managed to just almost team time trial it once the uh, once the rain came down. The corners were so slippery that we just kept Ben at the front and just took our time around the corners and then just rode a consistent pace and uh, tried to keep any brakes in check and not let them get above 10 to 15 seconds. I mean, Ben had 40 seconds, so we were never too worried. Um, And it was a real flowy course, so it was very difficult to get brakes away. It doesn't stop people trying, though, and um, certainly you guys had your work cut out there. Um, In the end, it was Jesse Kerrison who took the win, state of matter. He's he's proving himself to be... Pretty much the form sprinter these days, though I haven't really seen him do a full-on sprint against Scott Law. That'll be interesting to see. Um, maybe at Melbourne or Warrnambool. Um, Anthony Giacoppo was second there from Avanti. 
And Sam Wellsford uh, writing from JML, um, back from his team suiting at the Olympics, and he was in the at third. In the in the end, the the overall, which is the important bit, uh, Ben Dyble from you guys took first, 40 sec, 41 seconds ahead of Chris Hamilton, and Chris Harper, who you mentioned from Swiss Wellness, um, 51 seconds down in third. And yeah, it was an impressive, impressive podium. Um, I, I don't think anyone would seriously be called a surprise on there. Um, Chris Harper's been knocking on the door for a long time. And I suppose everyone knows the quality of Ben and Chris on, in the first two spots there. Yeah, that's right. And look, credit to Chris Harper. He did everything he could to try and steal back time in that final crit. He was, I reckon he attacked maybe a dozen times in the race trying to get a gap. Um, I think Pat Shaw, he had on earlier, was doing plenty of attacking with him as well, just trying to trying to isolate us and make Ben do some chasing. But unfortunately, you know, the 54Ks at 48Ks an hour wasn't enough, wasn't enough time for them to, to tire us out fully. And what were the celebrations like? Uh, I know that a lot of people had trouble getting flights back from, from Tasmania afterwards, but I think that was mainly into Melbourne. Were you guys you guys okay? Were you guys in the car, were you? I don't know. Um, we had half and half. So we had our um, team cars down there catching the ferry back and a few of us catching the plane back. Um, yeah, a few quiet beers at the airport, nothing too exciting. There's still a bit of season to go for um, a few of the guys. I'm done for the moment. Um, but, yeah, a few of the guys have got warning and other things going on. So, you know, can't celebrate too much. Personally, how does it, how does it feel to get the team made up for a victory like this? I mean, I mean, in comparison to, you know, taking a good result at something like Grafton, um, where, where does it sit in um, your own personal um, pleasure of, of a race? It's, it's a very different feeling. Grafton was a culmination of a long a really long build-up for me and a lot of work um, really targeting that race. Tassie, I really came with the mentality that I was going to support Ben and try and get him up for the win. So, look, to be honest, I put it on equal terms. It's our first NRS GC win and to take down Avanti, who've been, who've consistently, well, they've won every NRS event this year. So that was just, it's an amazing feeling. I think we're all still on a high and I think hopefully the attitude will carry into the warning for the boys. Yeah, um, speaking of Warnie, we'll go to that now. Okay, welcome back, and we're chatting about the Melbourne to Warnable, which is 277 kilometres this year, and it starts in Werribee and, of course, finishes in the main street of Warnable there. Um, last year, it was Scott Sunderland who took the win um, of Budget Fortress, the now defunct Budget Fortress. Uh, took the win there from Alex Edmondson and Oliver Kent Spark. Um, also another defunct team there, um, racing for Search Through Pain, though they're technically a tacky team, Gusto, these days. Um, it was really budget footless race last year. They made the pace all day. I mean, Jake Halpin was off the front for that incredibly long break, as many of you will remember. Um, real incredible effort. He stole it. Um, there was a breakaway of about uh, seven riders, I think, and he bridged over to them. Um, by himself when the gap was sitting at about five minutes. And then Jack Bobridge um, jumped out of the peloton uh, later on in the piece and bridged up to Jake and those two uh, just did a solo um, job off the end there until about the final 10 kilometres. Um, Pat, last year, um, how did you see that race going? I mean, obviously it was affected by the team's classification battle um, at that stage of the season. Yeah, hats off to Scott Sunderland, who obviously showed how great a sprinter he was last year and um, he's shown that he can climb as well. So I think Camperdown climb isn't usually an issue for him either. But I was surprised that he made the 270 kilometres and had such a great kick. Um, it shows that, you know, if he's there this year, then he's going to obviously be a huge threat. Um, and, yeah, Budget did take the race on, but really no um, body sort of tried to stop that with the whole uh, team's classification, the NRS, so on the really on the line, um, very close battle as we know uh went right down to the wire but um in the end also ollie can spark a, pre a previous winner of the melbourne warnable running third um you know it's still a great race it still um shows that the better riders were at the at the front at the end um i think we'll see a completely different bike race this year um having looked at the forecast 
but also I think that having the uh, team's classification series absolutely well and truly sewn up will allow a lot more freedom for riders that probably didn't have that freedom in the past um, going into this round, but also probably will allow uh, other teams to get a bit adventurous too. Yeah, I mean, I've looked at the forecast and it looks like it's going to be some pretty strong northerly winds. So that'll be mostly a crosswind for the for the day. I mean, is that the way? And yeah, that's going to make things really tough, isn't it? Especially if that um, race really heats up there. Um, do you see the race really splitting up into the finish? I think it's important that we uh, keep that in mind that even if it is windy, you really need cooperation by a group to continue momentum anyway. So if the riders are tired that are hanging on and they don't maintain and continue that work, uh, it's going to stop anyway. So it's really going to come down to, and it always does, uh, come down to who's got legs left at this time of the year. But also, um, importantly, will be who's got the motivation to ride for that long. Um, we haven't had a really difficult uh, warning since probably... I'd have to say 2011 was the last real hard one I rode with Joel Pearson. Uh, he won that. Um, I think there was 23 riders go over the 200-kilometre championship line. So it was already pretty split by then, and um, we could well see that situation again this year. Yeah, it's worth noting that we don't have a start list at the moment, so there's not so much prognosticating we can do about the potential um, winners or how the, even how the race will pan out, pan out with um, different teams' tactics. Um, but it's fair to say that the strong teams are going to try and get the numbers up the road. I mean, that's obvious. Um, but we're looking at we're looking at very similar um, guys. I mean, if it if it does come down to a sprint finish, I mean, you've got names like um, Scott Sunderland, who's likely to be there from um, what I've been hearing. Um, Jesse Kerrison, as well as obviously being very strong. Um, the question is whether he'll get the distance at you know relatively young age. Oh uh, yeah, I don't think. I don't think that um, age is going to be an issue for Jesse. I've actually been very impressed with his last week in Tasmania. He really has shown that he's come out of that uh, post-King High Lake um, illness or whatever was lingering around for him that held him back so greatly at Gippsland. We know he's a talented athlete, and um, I think that the distance won't be an issue. But in any case, whoever's going to make that distance needs to have their nutrition sort out pretty well um, before the event. So I think if it's going to be a bunch sprint, it could be very uh, interesting because uh, you'll have Anthony Giacobo, Scott Sunderland, Jesse Kerrison. And then you also have, uh, it's very interesting, every year you get some young guys or some guys maybe in their mid-20s that can sprint okay, but then when they get to the end of the Warnable, they don't get any slower. So they actually um, surprise a lot of people and they're people that um, potentially you let sit your wheel and they get the best lead out. Uh, Ollie Kent Sparks, I believe that's how he won his uh, Melbourne Warnable. He still had to win the sprint and he still had to be very good, um, but his sprint in, early, in, a, in a shorter event probably wouldn't have won that race. But after that distance, he had definitely had the best punch left. Um, and won emphatically. So it just shows that if you, even if you're a rider that hasn't won even a short, shorter NRS event before, the Melbourne Audible isn't out of the question. Okay, and we're back with Sam talking about. Uh, Melbourne to Warrnambool. Um, unfortunately, the technical regulations came out um, after I talked with Pat Shaw, so we didn't have a chance to look at the, sh at the start list and have a chat about some of the riders who might be in with a chance of winning there. But um, I'll go through them now with, with Sam. Um, Sam, first of all, I mean, is there any particular reason you're not riding the race? Um, I would have thought a longer race would have suited you quite well. Of the NRS calendar, it's probably the race that suits me the most. Um, but this year I've decided that my main target for next season is the Nationals time trial and keep continuing to train till um, the warning and then having a few weeks off before building up again just doesn't leave you with enough time. Um, and I think there's, I'm not the only one who sort of feels that way. It's a bit unfortunate. I'd love to race the warning, but Nationals is where I really want to be peaking. Yeah, so we'll go through some of the big names uh, who are likely to make an impact. Um, firstly, the sprinters. I mean, obviously, Anthony Giacoppo was in very good form in 
um, at, at Tasmania and obviously and Pat Shaw is another name who's going to be mixing up in the sprint if it comes down to something like that. Uh, Sean Whitfield from Oliver's Real Foods Racing, he's on the he's on the start list as well. I don't know if he'll quite get the distance there. That's that's something that's up in the air at the moment, but he's been very impressive so far this year, um, Sam, from what you say. Yeah, look, I think he's definitely a chance if uh, that early break gets away and the race isn't too hard, but it is a long day in the saddle and I haven't seen him prove himself over that distance yet. But um, I'd love to see him do it. Well, yeah, um, other fast men, I mean, Scott Law, who we were talking about earlier, um, well, briefly, um, he's on the start list and, again, be interesting to see if he gets the distance. Jesse Kerrison, another one. Um, though he's he's proven himself really over the harder racing and he'll be, I think he'll probably get it, so we shall see. Uh, James Glasspool is around, uh, the Novo Nordisk rider. He, he's got a, a handy little punch on him. So if he, yeah, if he's around, I wouldn't be surprised to see him, um, you know, um, hop, up, hop, there, hop up there on the podium. But of course, the big name, uh, Scott Sunderland, who is racing as a individual. And that might change the tactics from a number of teams because... Um, whilst he won't be surrounded by team members, he'll be a lot more um, vulnerable to attack and perhaps some teams will decide it's not worth having sprints finish as Scott Sunderland is there. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's a very difficult... If you've left it late, it's a very difficult race to split up because the group's so big still at the end. Um, we saw that last year. I was in maybe six or seven moves in the final 30Ks. Um, and as were a number of guys, um, and nothing can really get away on those last roads. The weather could play a huge factor that could split it. Um, but Sunderland being isolated, I don't think is necessarily a huge disadvantage in a race like the Warney, uh, unless the wind gets up. Well, it is predicted to be quite windy and gusts of about 30 kilometers an hour. So, um, and a northerly, so it'd be a crosswind. So yeah. It'll be interesting to see if it goes that way. And I hope it does because that will lend itself to a different sort of rider. Um, and out of that, I mean, you can name a number of people. I don't know, maybe Harry Carpenter. He'd be, he'd be a rider. It'd be interesting. Uh, Dan Fitter, Jake Kaufman. You know, you've got all those different names there who could be, who could be mixing up. Um, what about your boys? Who do you think's an, a name to keep an eye, on, an eye out on? Alex West, you know, he was phenomenal this week and he's been training the house down and doing plenty of long rides. So I think he's certainly one. Um, one that people may not think of is Ben Carmen. Um, he had a fantastic race at Tassie, really helping the team out. And I think uh, the Warney really suits him as well. So I'd like to see him, especially uh, if the wind's up, I think it'd be a good day for him. I think he could get up on there on the podium. Oh, well, we'll keep an eye out for him then. And uh, big big prediction sticking your neck out there. Um, well, from the women. He's a crafty racer, so when the wind's up, he knows what to do. Okay. And uh, from the women, we've got some crafty racers in there as well. Um, there's only 12 women on the start list, but they're all pretty good um, from what I've seen. And certainly six of them are top quality. I mean, we've got Beck Wysak, two-time world champion in the individual pursuit. Um, Sophie Mackay the um, national criterium champion uh, Kendall Hodges who's been um, who won a stage recently at national capital tour uh, Chessie Fabry of the, is another member of high five dream team uh, Maddie Wright from specialized and Carly McKay who is you know also another quality writer so it'll be yeah it's hard it's harder for the women I think because it's a race within a race and it would yeah. be a lot, a lot of how long they hang on to the men, I think. Is... Yeah, if the way they started with the women starting with the men, um, it's a really messy start, um, especially with the other grades in there as well. And I know that bunch positioning for the women just is a huge factor in that race because if it splits, you know, 20 or 30 Ks in, then the race is over for a lot of the women. Um, I think Beck Wysak should have no problem holding position up there with the men and should be should be looking good this weekend, I reckon. Yeah, well, I, I don't see any reason to disagree with you there. Um, I, I don't know if High Five are racing as a team or not because there's a fair bit of prize money on the line. So maybe they'll... Because uh, the women are getting equal prize money to the men, actually. Um, I don't think that was very well communicated to the 
to the women's teams beforehand um, because I was talking to Holden earlier and they had no idea that this was happening. <laughs> so anyway, there's only 12 women on the start line and uh, with decent money for the first four places, um, maybe High Five will just decide to ride as a team and split the money come come the finish, which will make will make um, them very hard to beat. Um, anyway. Yes. So you, you you had Ben Carmen there for a pick. I will go with I don't know. Um, I mean I've been I was incredibly impressed with Scott Sunderland at Great South Coast, so I'll go with Scott Sunderland. It'd be, I'll be boring. I mean sometimes you've got to be boring, don't you? Yeah. I, now I'm just hoping that last eighty k's is super hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe maybe we'll change it once I uh, once I see the weather forecast a bit closer to the day, um, and if the, if the wind's really getting up there, I'll go go for somebody else. But for the moment, um, sticking with Scott. Okay. Um, we'll be back in a second. Okay, and we're talking the World Championships now. I mean, we're in the middle of it already. Um, there's been the team time trial. There's been uh, the men, the men's under-23s and the women's juniors time trial as well. Um, so far, the results have been, yeah, pretty good for Australia. I mean, Miles Scottson took third in the under-23s with his brother Callum in 10th. Um, Madeline Fastnacht from the women's juniors was ninth, and Chloe Moran 15th. And Madeline Park, who's done a fair bit of racing over here in the NRS as well, uh, for, New, for the New Zealanders, um, I think she raced for Mike Greer Holmes um, most recently at the National Capital Tour. She did well as well, finishing 11th there. And Orica Bike Exchange um, continued their strength in the team time trial and they were third there behind Etix and BMC. Um, I suppose the real talking point so far though, Pat, has been the incredible heat and the wisdom or lack of wisdom in holding... Uh, seven days of racing in, you know, one of the hottest places in the world. Yeah, well, we always knew that it was going to be an absolute hot, windy and draining place to run a world championships. And why they ever agreed on it, well, we'll probably never know how much money changed hands, but um, it has always been a bad idea and it's not going to get any better. Um, but it still surprises me that the people that are there are complaining about it. They knew what it was going to be like. Um, the athletes, the teams, the um, organisation. Um, so, you know, it's no surprise that we're talking about it, but it is a surprise to me that we've got people sort of making such a big deal about it when we knew that the World Championships were going to be there. Uh, but I'd be interested to see whether there's cool vests run during the road race or anything like that at some point. Uh, because I think that, uh, as we spoke about the Melbourne Warnable riders being able to achieve results they normally couldn't, I think we'll also see this probably in the World Championships. Um, there's probably a lot of leaders of nations, teams going into this road race that may not even be able to make it. If they don't shorten the distance of the race, um, I wouldn't be surprised if riders that have had pretty hard seasons um, just don't finish. We saw this on the other front when the worlds were really badly rained and terrible conditions where Simon Clark actually was Australia's best performer and, um, and, and no one else, I think, from Australia even finished that uh, particular worlds. Um, so, yeah, it could make it from a spectator perspective very interesting. I think from an athlete's perspective, probably pretty overwhelming. Uh, yeah, well, we'll get on to discussing um, each of the races now. I mean, the women's road race is its a bit different, actually. It's only 134.5 kilometres. I mean, obviously, it's got to be under the 150-kilometre limit for the UCI. Um, but it's not a typical Tour of Qatar stage, which you would imagine. It does 28 kilometres, and that's all within Doha. And then it does seven 15-kilometre laps of the Pearl Circuit, which you'll, if you've seen anything of the world the world's coverage so far is that incredibly technical circuit around that man-made island with all the hotels and what have you and it's got the direction changing almost constantly so it's less likely that we see crosswinds uh, come into effect but i'll be interested to hear your opinion on this pat i mean um i was talking to chloe hosking and we'll put in a bit of the interview i did with her uh, a bit later um, she was saying that the change of direction means that the winds have less time to play effect, which is true. But also, you're more strung out from the technical parts um, of that course. So does that um, 
does that lay does that play into laying the hammer down on those shorter um, bits where the crosswinds do come into play? Yeah, I really think that uh, probably these shorter straights, as with all the roundabouts and that as well. How many is there? Nine on that pearl circuit, maybe maybe more. And um, I, I just think that the technicality of that's going to already have the field strung out. And then if you're in single file and drop the and people are dropping wheels, and especially we still see in the World Championships, just because it's the World Championships, there's some nations that aren't very strong. So if they're dropping wheels and leaving gaps, then that could actually, you know, push other riders um, out of the echelon if there is an echelon at that point. And then if they do get space to actually open it up and roll turns, then you could find a group opens up a gap very quickly. I think it's going to be very Kermese-like racing, like in Belgium and, and Netherlands. And I think that those countries are going to really dominate these world championships. Very interesting to see how it goes. Um, Obviously, we've got to back in um, our main sprinter, though, Chloe Hosking, for the win here, surely. I mean, she's um, going incredibly well at the moment and has been taking out a number of um, the top sprint, sprint wins. So, yeah, and with the Australian team riding for her, a strong team for the flat, um, hopefully she does really well. So all the best for Chloe there. Um, Pat, you, you got a pick or are you you just supporting Chloe along with the rest of us? 100. I will be, I'll be 100%. For uh, Chloe Hosking, there's no doubt about that. Or any other Australian that, if she's not available, come at the finale, that there's obviously backup plans there as well. But um, I don't think it matters if it's bloody hurricane. I think she'll be fine. I think she's just shown how great um, of a performer she's been lately and all, all through the year. It's been months that we've been talking about her now. It's not like it's just this last week or the week before that. So, um, yep, 100% behind Chloe. Okay, now for something a little bit different. We've got a short excerpt from an interview I did with Chloe Hosking here on her season, uh, the Worlds, and what's happening with her next season. If you want to read about the full interview, go to sbs.com.au slash cyclingcentral. Full interview is there. It's called Chloe Hosking Chasing Rainbows. And hopefully you enjoy this short excerpt. Looking ahead to the World Championships now, um, you mentioned that it was one of the reasons that you marked down the season right from the start. Um, and you've been in good form all season in the big sprint finish, finishes. Um, how confident are you heading into the World Champs with the form? And well, you I don't know if I've been in good form all season. <laughs> I had a pretty slow spring. I sat down with my coach in um, August last year. I injured myself and we just... We had to call season over and just we so we really had the luxury of being able to plan out this season and with the focus obviously around Doha. So it was always an aim for me to be in really good form in the early but like really, really early Australian summer and then carry that through to Qatar, which worked pretty well. I picked up a sixth of the national championships, which is you know, <laughs> for many it's good, <laughs> for others maybe not so good, but I'll claim it anyway. Sprint win in the ladies' tour of Qatar, but then I sort of really dropped off. Um, and mentally it was hard, but I just had to keep, keep telling myself that this was a plan, <laughs> this was meant to be happening. And then really from China onward, it all just started clicking. Like um, I did China and then I went and had a really big altitude block and then I picked up the win in the Giro, win at La Course, win at Route de France um, and then capped off with second in Madrid and win on the weekend. They've just been, it's like confidence boost on confidence boost leading into the, into the World Championships and then coming in this week with the national team has been really good because it's, it's really motivating to be around the girls and see and like hear how much faith and like support they've put in me. They just, they're really committed to, to this world championships and being the best result for Australia. And it's, you know, it's exciting. It's nerve wracking, but yeah, it's, it's also really motivating. Okay, on to the men's now, and it, do, it does get a bit more Tour of Qatari here. I mean, it's, at the start, there's a 151-kilometre kind of out-and-back loop. It's not a, not strictly out-and-back. Out they don't go back on the same course, but it's very much a north-to-south um, sort of ellipse that they ride there. 
and that's got the potential um, to possibly split up if it gets windy uh, as there's a lot of open terrain there and they do leave the city for that portion. Um, once they get back, it's again, seven, 15 kilometer laps of the Pearl to finish. So you've got about 105 kilometers there. So even if it does split up on that early stage, there's a potential for it to come back together. So it'll be, you know, potentially more of a tactical battle and um, one that might play into the specialists um, who can deal with the wind like the Belgians, like the, uh, like the Dutch, Dutch guys, like you mentioned earlier, Pat, I mean, and Tom Boonen, for instance, has taken 20 something stage wins in the tour of Qatar before. So, you know, maybe it's a race for him. Um, Pat, what's your opinion? I really think that initial part is going to be the crucial part on this uh, world championships, because if teams like Belgium and Netherlands actually decide to represent in the break, which we really never see because those big teams normally sit back and just protect their leader and set it up. But ultimately if the race is too easy on that initial part, those teams, well, Belgium, um, I don't think are going to be able to really go up head to head with Kital. They're not going to be able to go head to head with Cavaria either. So um, I think they need to try something early on so that then those other teams will have to sacrifice riders before they get back to the 715 kilometer loops. And then on the 715 kilometer loops, if the teams have already used some energy and then um, Belgians, the Netherlands go on attack. Um, we could see an ex a very exciting race, one that could have, you know, several groups on the road and then um, hopefully comes back towards the end for a very nail-biting finish. Yeah, I love, I love spinning the most, um, the most possibly exciting scenario out of, um, <laughs> out of, you know, what could be a dull race. I mean, it's a flat, it's a flat course, so it could just be, you know, five riders up the road and the peloton drags them back in five k's from the finish and um, we have a sprint to win but it does have that potential for really splitting up and becoming a super interesting race so it'd be interesting to see how it does go um the australians how should how should they approach it i mean got uh michael matthews and caleb ewan on on the start line um is it is it all in for caleb or should there be you know mixed mixed strategies if I was the Australian team, I'd just be 100% buying Caleb. If a break goes, Australia doesn't need to represent. You're going to have the guys there that can ride that initial part till they get back to the Pearl. He's a great uh, circuit racer. He does the criteriums fantastic, fantastically, so he's not going to struggle with the excessive corners and turns that there are on the Pearl circuit. And I think he's one of the riders that can come out of the wheels in the final um, of a race like that and really dominate. Um, can he win it? Um, look, it's a world championship. He's going to need something to go his way in the finale. Um, but so does all the other riders. You know, just anyone that says that Kittel's got it sewn up if it's a bunch sprint. We've seen so many mixed results this year already in different types of finishes, uphill, downhill, um, flat uh, finishes that the sprinters have made. Um, Look, there's every best sprinter that's ever existed is there. Um, so I would be backing him in. And, uh, you know, you've got Michael Matthews there if you need a um, backup card. But it'd be, I'd be all in for Caleb. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Kittel because, I mean, Greipel is there. Um, is the Germans nominated lead lead man in, in the finish there, which I think is probably the right decision. I mean, Kittel's never really shown his ability over the long distances, whereas Grapple's got, you know, more form these days over the harder races. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many different names, though. Talking recently, Fernando Gaviria um, took the win in Paris Tours and, you know, a name like Damar Bahani, those guys. Uh, Viviani, obviously a big name. Uh, Zola did very well recently as well. So there's so many different names. I, I'd like, I like Viviani, to be honest, in this sort of race. Um, he normally has to deal with absolutely no train at all. So it'll be interesting to see how he goes here. Yeah, I think uh, anyone that watched the team's time trial and saw the absolute powerhouse that Marcel Kittel was will know that he's definitely ready and he is flying. So um, I'll, I'll, I think he's probably German's leader, really. Um, unless, you know, he has, says that he has poor sensations um, after the after a distance is covered, I think you'll find that they'll end up riding for Kittel, especially after that dominant performance in the team's time trial for Edix uh, just the other night. Um, 
Yeah, Viviani could be good, but I think he just needs too much to go his way in the in the finish. Um, you get on that Pell circuit and your team lines it out properly, there's not going to be a lot of people that are in the sprint. You know, there might be three or four guys. Viviani's not going to be in those three or four first sprinters. He's going to be sixth or seventh, and I doubt that he'll actually be able to compete for the, the podium spots. And, of course, the one person who I, I've... Find myself, I find myself consistently writing off to my detriment. Uh, Mark Cavendish. I mean, he's he's been in he's been in quite a bit of sickness recently, so he might not be in absolute top form. But you just can't um, write him off, as I've discovered to my detriment. You can't write Cav off. There's no doubt about that because he performs on the big stage when it matters. Um, but again, we're just talking about all the sprinters. I think that the one that I mentioned before Olympics, everyone thought was a joke, and he ended up winning was Greg Van Avermaet. Well, I think he can still win the uh, Worlds as well. Um, it, we just don't know what's going to happen on these circuits at the end. Um, there's, we still haven't even thought about the things that happen so often in cycling. Crashes, punches, those things. If they happen on these circuits, how are vehicles going to service the riders effectively and can they get them back to the front? Um, I don't think they can. I've looked at that, that Pearl circuit. It doesn't look like it's awfully easy to take people back through uh, potentially a uh, very banked up um, convoy. And then not only that, if they get them through the convoy, are they actually riding on the back of third or fourth group? Um, so these are the technical sides of things that are going to change the race. And I think that guys like that, like Greg Van Avermaet, Philippe Gilbert, those guys are going to really um, have their chance. Yeah, well, it'll certainly be incredibly interesting and make sure you tune in on SBS um, to to watch the watch the racing um okay um i think that will be enough for now um thanks pat for joining us um we'll we'll unfortunately we didn't get you and sam on the same record but um you'll be side by side um in the finished product so thanks for joining us pat and uh, good luck for warnable on Saturday. Saturday. yep no worries always a pleasure to be on uh, on the pod and uh, until next time and hopefully uh, after a Melbourne Warnable result. Well, all the best for that, Pat. And that should do us for today. Thanks for joining us. You can join the conversation on Twitter and Facebook. Just search Breakdown Podcast into your favourite search engine and you should be able to find us. Okay. Thanks for being on, Sam. And congrats uh, on you and Moby's season. Um, and hopefully we'll catch you catch you racing at the Nationals. Um, are you doing two bright beforehand to, you know, get ready for the Nationals? Or? No, look, I did tour of Bright last year and I was terribly unfit and it was a horrendous experience. So I think I've been scarred from that one for a few years. Um, it's a great event, but instead I'll be going over and doing the tour of Margaret River um, with the Mobius team. So that should be a great event, a lot of fun. Um, and then, yeah, I think that's about it till Nationals. Oh, well, all the best for that. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, yeah, we'll just sign off now, I guess. All right. Thanks, Jamie. See you later, guys. Cheers.